Hello, yes, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast, a weekend recap, a weekend in the EFL in which Borough's young villains caused damage to Swans and cut the gap between them and Blades to four because Luton win in Sheffield and do the Carlton dance. It's not unusual for them to win away. Sunday, Sunderland strike again, beating Norwich this time away from home and Wild Thing beats Wilder at Loftus Road in League One. Argyle's pilgrimage to God's own country ends in peril as Duff's cheeky tykes strike again. Ipswich given a burst by Hurst and maintain a thirst for first, but it's very much Wednesdays to give up. And Liam will be manning the yellow fort. They lost again. Sybil's kicks securing a Rams win. League Two played host to the game of the weekend by Miles, Crew and Salford playing a bonkers game of hot potato. Listen out for that one. Stevenage's February stumble becomes a March March. March at the double. And Bradford keeper Harry Lewis put the football in rugby football in Newport. All to come on the Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair. All right, George. Hello, mate. You right? Good. You? Yeah, good. It's interesting to me that because you are, of course, a broadcaster of some repute these days. And you will, anyone who asks you, what? These days. Well, you know, we've got friends out in New Zealand who are being told how good a host you are of the Athletic Foot Tactics football podcast, podcast tactics. <laughs> but but you, you do, you know, you're not embarrassed to tell people that James Richardson was a big influence of yours. And that's nice. But you always say that you're, you're worried that you don't want to, you know, just copy him. So it's interesting to hear you go for the long, intro. Because that's yeah. the only time I think you've ever done that. But it's a nice nod to a great pod. George, there's 10 games to go in the EFL. Not for every single team, but for the majority of the 72 teams. And so on the pod today, as well as doing some weekend recapping, we're going to basically rank the excitement levels of the three leagues. Just looking at each major outcome. So looking at the title race, the automatic promotion battle, the playoff picture and the relegation scrap. And we're going to try and work out basically what we're most looking forward to, which of those has the the largest potential for drama, because that's what we're up for uh, come the end of April in the first weekend of May. But first, in the Championship, some recapping. I think we should start at Bramall Lane. Sheffield United, nil. Luton, one, George. A huge win for Luton. Massive for solidifying their playoff position. Though I reckon there may be one or two just working out the gap between second place Sheffield United and now fourth place, Luton Town. Yeah, I certainly did. It's basically the first thing I did after five o'clock on Saturday was just have a quick look. And it's one of those where every time I look at the top of the championship, the gap between Blades and the ones behind them is always a little bit bigger than I think it is. I always get excited and I look and I'm like, well, yeah, no, they're, still, they're still quite a long way in front. But there's no denying that Sheffield United are a shadow of their former selves. I would like to think that I kind of saw it coming a little bit. I remember you and I having a chat um, around January and saying like kind of weird performances from Blades recently, um, even though they were picking up results fairly consistently. But they've now, uh, I think, lost four of their last six games. And again here, they uh, were not great. I mean, Luton were clinical in what they did. The goal from Carlton Morris was a tap-in, but Elijah Adebayo deserves immense credit for the assist. Gets the ball on the right-hand side, stands up uh, John Fleck before slipping it through his legs and squaring it to, to Morris to tap-in. Brilliant from him and a great goal, but Blades just weren't really, really weren't really at it. Um, they had a lot of the ball as you'd expect, but were pretty toothless in in, in doing so. And I, I think we have to sometimes, you know, it's easy to slip into cliches so often, especially around kind of the turn of the year when you're talking about teams and and everything's quite stale. 
you often have fans being like, yeah, just wait until all of our injured players get back. And there's an assumption that that is going to improve you. But with, with Sheffield United, they were at their best this season when they had loads of players missing. And the return of, of players, you, you'd think, would give them a boost in terms of quality, certainly um, out wide with, with Bogle and Lowe, just seems to have rocked the boat a little bit. I think that and the, and the, the break for the World Cup just seems to have... And I'm trying very hard not to use the word momentum here, but has has just taken whatever formula was working before the World Cup, added a couple of ingredients that haven't really gone down too well, and the alchemy seems to be lost. So, yeah, for, for Sheffield United, even though they have a gap still over Borough of uh, four points and seven points down to Luton, given how rapidly those two teams are picking up wins and given Sheffield United's form, that could be closed very quickly. Now, I still think Blades probably have enough quality about them to, to to turn this around. They've got a huge game coming up. And the issue for them is that their next two league games are against sides in that playoff battle in, in Sunderland and Norwich. But um, So by the time they host Wigan on the 7th of April before the, the trip to, to Burnley too, that gap could be could be even smaller. I want to give a little more credit to Luton. I, I definitely take what you, you're saying against Sheffield United, even just watching the extended highlights back one of my main thoughts was just how flat Bramall Lane sounded, and you know it was it was pretty familiar familiar patterns of play, but they couldn't really penetrate. Uh, I think credit has to go to Luton because I think their setup was absolutely brilliant. The defensive shape was pretty on point. They pressed when they needed to, but they were also happy to to sit in and and suck up pressure uh, as well. I know Lockyer picked out by a lot of the Luton fans for having had a very very strong game, and you know when I saw the team news without. Jordan Clark, who's been probably their best player this season, without Alfie Doughty, who's, who's had a huge impact over the last few weeks, particularly going forward. I thought they might have found it tough, but as you say, they didn't really. They just defended well. Sheffield United didn't have a, a ton of major chances until one sort of goal scramble at the end where Horvath came out and, and smothered Ahmed Hodzic's shot pretty quickly. Very, very impressive. And, you know, they've got the most points away from home in the Championship now, Luton. Uh, it just goes to show how impressive they have, have been away from home all season. Uh, but it looks like some of the improvements that Rob Edwards is making is taking them towards certainly a playoff spot. And if you remember, George, last season, Luton made the playoffs with like an almighty effort in the last six to ten games. They were down to the bare bones. They were absolutely grinding and it was quite like gritty and quite grim to watch and they got into the playoffs possibly a little exhausted I don't get that feeling from them right now I have a completely the opposite feeling I have a, a feeling of positivity of more improvement to come if anything rather than just like clinging on and desperately trying to nick that playoff spot and that is exciting exciting uh, and a great great win for them uh, four points between Sheffield United and Borough because they won again George, they're making a 3-1 away win, a bit of a calling card this season. They did so again at Swans. Yeah, the irresistible attacking force that is Middlesbrough always seems to, you know, it might take half an hour, might take an hour, but they always get there in the end. And that was the case again here against uh, a Swansea side who are struggling. Um, you know, when Swansea took the lead, it was slightly against the run of play with Joel Peru. And it took until the 54th minute. But as was the case um, when they beat uh, QPR 3-1 at home, um, you know, once they got in front, it was then kind of one-way traffic and they got their, their reward for it too. I think for, for Borough, the, impress, the impressive thing to me is with managers, I think often you see, and Borough fans will remember this last season with Chris Wilder, when a new manager comes in and oversees a, a turnaround in fortune, it feels like you're riding the crest of a wave. And 
inevitably at some point that wave comes crashing down and, and the 2-0 loss at the Hawthorns where they were a shadow of themselves could easily have been that but to then score eight goals in the following two games and you know win both games so convincingly is you know, a massive testament not only to Carrick but also his very young squad you know you look through the, the goal scorers um, taking Akpom out of it but you know Archer with with another goal here um, Aaron Ramsey who's settled into life incredibly well um, in his loan spell getting his, his third goal for the club too. Yeah, they're, they're playing with just a total fearlessness that I think makes them incredibly difficult opponents. And when things don't go right for them, whether that's losing a game at the Hawthorns or going 1-0 down against Swansea, um, there's no diversion from the plan. It, it is still flood, the, bo- flood the, the box of bodies, get the ball forward as much as possible, play with just freedom. And um, yeah, then they've got the quality to go with it too. So it is... I don't really see why this is going to stop between now and the end of the season and their their fixtures are pretty winnable you know I mentioned that the difficulty that Blades might have in the next two Borough's next two games are both against both at home against Stoke and Preston two games they'll, they'll be heavily odds on to win both of those and then they travel to Huddersfield so you know I'd say it would be quite a brave person to argue that nine points isn't really achievable for Borough and my, my reckoning is if they get nine points there um, then Will there still be a gap with Sheffield United? Maybe not. Yeah, well, Burnley are at the top of the table. They beat Wigan 3-0. Uh, it was as comfy as it sounds, and it was made more comfy by the fact that Wigan's defender, Rekic, was sent off in the first half. Two bookable offences, no complaints whatsoever with either of them. And it was Teller and Foster, the people, on the score sheet. Teller... <laughs> brace for him takes him to 14 for the season only three players have scored more than Nathan Teller now always notable I think when someone who's not an out and out number nine is doing that sort of thing his his movement his free role just makes him incredibly difficult to pick up and I think having Barnes occupying defenders just gives him even more scope to uh, to find pockets of space and, and do what he did here um, off the field both teams with some news uh, Wigan uh, late payment of, of wages for players and staff again Uh, They released a statement saying we'd like to assure stakeholders that this is a temporary matter which is promptly being resolved. And those words would cover a bit more weight if this wasn't, well, you know, if this was the first time this had happened, but it isn't. Uh, They they went on to say the club has been disrupted by recent liquidity issues and this continues to be the case, hence the current situation. Uh, The club wants to emphasise that the financial strength of our ownership group remains robust and they are committed to supporting the club. So we look forward to seeing that being proven with the payment of wages uh, on time and continuously. There have been a few red flags and we hope that they are just that, I guess. Uh, as for Burnley, well, they were been placed under a transfer embargo as well. George, this is down to the late submission of their accounts to the EFL. In, they, they released a statement saying that they made the decision to change their auditors in November and the transition has taken longer than anticipated. We have provided draft accounts and financial information to the club financial reporting unit at the EFL and we continue to have regular dialogue with the unit to ensure we remain as open and as transparent and answer any questions the league may have. We believe the EFL will have no issue with the detail of our accounts other than their late submission. Certainly that one doesn't sound massively serious or shady or anything like that, but... (laughs) It does feel like it's just one thing after another with the championship, George, at the moment. Yeah, and, and you've also got the Huddersfield story breaking this morning that they're going to be placed under an embargo as well, although that's not yet um, confirmed. I think that's also yeah. late submission of accounts, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's just it's just frustrating, I guess. I think it, in the long and short of it is that we now have an EFL who um, try 
who are trying to play by the rules a lot more stringently than maybe a pre- the previous iteration of the EFL. And that means that you're not going to get away with these small things anymore. They act as a deterrent to, to clubs in future. The next time they're able to physically able to sign footballers, they'll be a Premier League club. So I don't know how that works. I think you and I both agree that when we have to talk about off-field matters, it's a shame. Normally that is because of the actions of owners who have behaved in an irresponsible way or not in the interest of fans and then it's our duty to talk about it when it comes to to this kind of bureaucracy it's just you know behave in a way that's going to ensure that this stuff doesn't happen is it that hard well it does it does strike me that the division feels some way away from what it felt like about 10 years ago the classic nickname of the championship was the most unpredictable league in the world it cannot call itself that anymore. It's completely wrong. It's not unpredictable at all. It's only slightly less predictable than the Premier League, which is incredibly predictable and worse for it. If it was to be called the most transfer embargoed league in the world or potentially the most financially unstable, then that would probably have more merit. But it, it is a bit of a shame. I do think, you know, and this is where maybe I'm getting a bit muddled. I agree with what you say. I think it's good and necessary that the EFL seem to have beefed up their financial policing. And it does appear to be the case. There's a lot of bad stuff that from the last decade that just needs undoing, but it's going to come with a lot of pain. And dare I say, a lot of things like this, you know, automatically pinging clubs into a transfer embargo for, as you say, basically a bureaucratic error. We don't think there's anything more to it than that, but we will find out. Big match preview ahead of the weekend was QPR Watford. It was Chris Wilder's first game as Watford manager. Um, They lost 1-0 and it was Gareth Ainsworth's first win as QPR uh, manager since his appointment a couple of weeks ago. The Loftus Road faithful were absolutely loving it. There was some great noise, some great post-match scenes. Ainsworth's hug with his assistant Dobbo was incredibly sweet. Uh, And it was a good goal as well. Another Villa Loney, uh, Archer and Ramsey scoring for Middlesbrough and the lovable Irogue scoring for QPR, um, dribbling all the way and then slotting very, very accurately into the corner. I noticed that uh, he went with a, a back three. He basically moved Sam Field, who's been who started every game this season in front of the defence, moved him into the left of a back three, maybe to give Dunn and Dickey just a little bit of support because their form has been very, very patchy recently. So it was tactically, it was an interesting one from Ainsworth with Field in a back three, then Dozell sitting in front and then Irabunum. And then basically Jamal Lowe, Chris Martin and Lyndon Dykes up top, which is quite fun. Um, as for, for Wilder and Watford, George, well, he's in. He replaced Bilic and he said their desire was better than our desire. Which isn't a great start, is it? Because I guess one of the things that Watford fans and ourselves were hoping was that Wilder might be able to inject a bit of desire into a, a squad of players who've been playing very much less than the sum of their parts for some time now and no immediate impact here. Maybe too early. You know, he was appointed late on in the week last week. Um, and I know that obviously, you know, in terms of, of effort and wanting it and all the rest of it, how long to really need. But, I, you know, I would I would put this one down to, uh, you know, he was in the dugout. It's his it's his game, but he's barely had any time on the training pitch with, with these players. So what are your general thoughts on Chris Wilder's appointment at Watford? Yeah, very positive about it, I, I think. You know, if you look back at his record as a manager, um, he, he came in at Oxford when Oxford were in, were in the conference um, around Christmas time and really underachieving. And there was a, a near immediate impact. He lost his first game against Salisbury, Salisbury away. And I was there. Sam Dewing broke his leg. Um, and 
and took Oxford on this incredible run in the second half of the season uh, where they only didn't get into the playoffs because of a bureaucratic error uh, in not registering Eddie Hutchinson of former Brentford fame uh, and he had a points deduction for that. Um, and then he went to Northampton a few years later when Northampton were in the relegation zone, bottom of, of League Two, and took them on an incredible run uh, out of the relegation zone. He took over Sheffield United in mid you know, in the summer, so that doesn't really come into it. But he took over Borough up from Warnock in November when they were very poor and they were unbeaten in December and he won manager of the month. He has an incredible record of short-term fixes. I think for all of the, you know, Warnock, Allardyce, uh, Pardew, names that crop up McCarthy about firefighter managers you know I think the reason why they're they're called that is because you know in Warnock's case he certainly has done it a few times but I'm not sure that it really rings true I think Wilder is one who has an incredible record in coming into a club and breathing life into that club it was also interesting that we we recorded that video um on Thursday last week and Alan Neil at the time hadn't been appointed as as uh, well, as assistant manager, he was appointed about an hour after we recorded the video. I think Chris must have watched it and thought, "Oh God, I forgot about Alan." <laughs> um, and that is a positive too. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will prioritise in their thinking the relegation from the Premier League and then a very poor start to the season this season for Borough. I would say that the relegation from the Premier League is pretty much inevitable for a club of that size and the journey to get there from, you know, they, they hadn't won in their first four games, even though he was at the helm, but Chris Wilder took them from the relegation zone in League One up to mid-table in the Premier League. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of has been said, some by us, about the, the, the Borough spell, where for all the issues and for all the cultural issues that at the club, you know, the underlying numbers were still very good when he was there. Um, and it wasn't a huge surprise that somebody else could come in and, and just, you know, get that going in terms of results. I think he he is someone who a couple of years ago was being touted for some of the biggest jobs in the country. Um, and I don't think a great deal has changed in terms of what he can offer. So I think Watford have themselves a very good short-term manager, whether it is a long-term fit. Again, given that, you know, for a manager who wants to have more control over transfers, going to Watford doesn't seem necessarily the, the, the best move for him. My general take was just this was a pretty good move for all parties for a, you know prioritizing the short term. Definitely, I and mean, I think the fact that he was happy to sign a short term contract suggests to me that he probably sees it as as him being in the shop window. Even though we didn't see it on Saturday, I think that the Chris Wilder will get a, a much better tune out of this Watford team than, than either Rob Edwards or Sylvan Bilic. And and you know there's a lot of analysis into are these Wilder players and the rest of it. I think we can get a bit bogged down in that. I think we should give. Coaches and managers more credit to to walk in, see what tools they've got available to them, and, and put that to best use. Okay, well, QPR's win was their first in absolutely ages, and it did some very good things just to ease the tension. Their fans probably felt like they had a bigger chance of going down than they objectively did, and that's absolutely right and fair when you haven't won for about three months. Um, but this win, uh, particularly mixed with the results of the bottom three, bottom four, uh, means that it is incredibly unlike QPR. will even get sucked into it, and uh, and this win helps a lot with that. At Norwich, nil, Sunderland won, George. This one on, on Sunday. Uh, a couple of Sundays ago, Sunderland beat Borough, was it? Yeah. Uh, and now they've gone to Norwich and won. So they'll be petitioning to be live on Sky Day every Sunday, or not, as the case may be for the travelling fans. But uh, a, a pretty good day out for the ones who did make it, particularly after three defeats in a row and a 5-1 thumping at home last time out. This was a great response. 
and felt kind of needed, I think, for Tony Mowbray, because even though the, the relationship between Sunderland fans and Mowbray has been good generally, um, I think you're always going to come under some scrutiny when you get beat 5-1 at home um, by a team well under you on the table managed by public enemy number one. So this felt like a big game. Um, obviously, Tony Mowbray being a bit of an Ipswich legend as well, maybe lended a bit more fuel to his fire too. Um, and Sunderland were good value for it as well. I think they probably feel like they could have been two ahead. Uh, a brilliant finish um, into the far corner from Abdullah Bar. Um, as you'd expect, Norwich being at home and, and the, the way they play under David Wagner, they they piled the pressure on in the second half, but um, I don't think you could say that Sunderland didn't deserve it. And it um, feels a bit like a Royal Rumble now because of the amount of teams in the Championship um, who are vying for those playoff places. I mean, maybe this will age badly, but in my mind, right now, you have... Anyone from Middlesbrough, I'm including Middlesbrough in this because no one is beyond a poor run of form. Middlesbrough all the way down to, I mean, probably just about Bristol City. I mean, we have to say Preston if we're saying that Watford could get in there. Uh, Bristol City currently nine points shy. So I think you have to include them in there just in case they, you know, they could win, go on a, go on a crazy run. But I think basically week by week now, we, we're going to shed shed contestants like a Royal Rumble they're all in the ring right now but slowly some are going to be thrown over the over the um the rope over the top rope okay over the top rope yeah exactly um and I think Sunderland were in danger of being one of those sides likely to go before this win where they've been up in well I mean they were third or fourth weren't they just four or five weeks ago um but the runner form you mentioned saw them drift pretty alarmingly down the table and when you consider um that Preston, who aren't necessarily a team who've been on our, on our promotion or playoff radar, uh, had they lost to, to Norwich, Preston would have overtaken them in the table. Um, but that is a win that not only uh, kind of anchors them back in that mix, but also takes crucial points off a team around them as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a big win in terms of keeping their season alive. I probably still think it's unlikely sitting here now that, that they're going to get into that top six. And, and big picture as well, I'm sure that no one would ever admit this within the club. Although Tony Mowbray did kind of allude to it in your interview with him on our YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago. But like they weren't planning on making the top six. They weren't expecting to make the top six. The, they haven't built a squad with the expectation or the pressure of making a, the top six. You know, only three starters here over the age of 23. Uh, that's Danny Bart at the back, Luco Nine, uh, who played left back here, the Swiss Army Knife, uh, and Patrick Roberts, the right winger, who's, uh, how old is Roberts? He's probably 25, 26, but he hasn't got a ton of mileage on him in terms of game time. So, you know, this is just year two of what I think is a, a pretty long-term project in the eyes of the owners, a, a project that so far they've basically played every single note correctly. Sunday was a, a great day for them. As for Norwich, 10 games under Wagner now, and I'm confused about them, to be honest, because in six of the ten, they've scored two or more. They've scored four twice. They've scored three a couple of times. So six out of ten, they've scored two or more, which is excellent. Great fun. But the other four times, they failed to score. And in most of those four, they haven't deserved a goal. They haven't really created a huge amount. That's quite bad. So therefore, I am confused. And I look forward to seeing more of this Norwich team to try and better understand them. Uh, George, Reading nil, Millwall won. I reckon this is maybe the bleakest game of the championship season so far. Um, a penalty from Vogelzammer. Great pen it was to uh, after Joe Lumley had taken down Fleming. Um, Reading, the home side, behind from the 11th minute, had two shots in the game. One of them... After six minutes from Jeff Hendrick, 
from 35 yards was blocked. And one of them, after 73 minutes, from Tom Ince, right-footed, his weaker right foot outside the box, uh, over the bar, high and wide. Uh, just the two shots for Reading. Uh, things are exceptionally bleak there. Millwall themselves only had six. Uh, only one of them was on target, and that was the pen. But they didn't need to do any more, and they were in no way fussed or bothered by any of this. So Millwall winning 1-0. Did you not think, and... Um... Also, quickly, apologies to the listener. who might be able to tell I had a pretty bad cold over the weekend and my voice is starting to go. So um, hopefully I don't get too croaky in the next hour or so. There aren't many occasions in the EFL in a season when I see who's taken a penalty and I'm like, hmm. what? That's weird. That was one of them, old Vogelschlammer, just slamming into the back of the net. Mate, as you know, I, I had a blackout on uh, Saturday, a self-imposed blackout, so I didn't know any scores. Too much vodka. <laughs> I didn't know any scores, any goal scorers until Sunday morning when I watched the highlights show. And when Fleming went through, I was excited uh, and he got taken down for the penalty and he didn't take it. I was pretty surprised. West Brom won Huddersfield nil, a very, very comfy home win as it was in midweek. That's quite a fortunate uh, slate of of home games, you'd say, for West Brom this week, just when they needed a couple of wins to stay uh, nice and close to the playoffs. They've had Wigan at home. They've had Huddersfield at home. They've beaten them both by one goal to nil with relative ease. Um, Not setting pulses racing, I think it's fair to say, with either of these performances, but uh, very much getting it done, and that's that's the main thing. I, I, I must admit, I did laugh, George, at the voiceover on the highlight show that said... Warnock's side held out for almost half an hour. And I'm like, come on, that's not holding out, is it? Almost half an hour. I saw you mention that to, uh, well, I saw you tweet football cliches about it. And I thought to myself, it kind of, I, I know what you're saying, but it kind of paints its own picture about how one-way traffic it was for that right. half an hour. Like they held out for half an hour, like telling the story of just how much it was. Um, they were under the cosh. So... It's hardly the defence of Helms Deep, is it? But uh, anyway, good, good on them. They they held out for almost half an hour. Did you see, and I feel like you and I could probably do a podcast, we could basically just take Neil Warnock's quotes every week and just do a pod on it, which would be quite fun. Did you see what he said about Carlos Corbran before the game? Um, do I want to know? It was really weird. He, in the pre-match, it, have you ever been in like a social situation where... No. <laughs> when <laughs> someone is just out of nowhere, just really unnecessarily rude to the other person, everyone's like, Right, where did that come from? In in the pre-match to this, Warnock just said, yeah, I don't know how Carlos Corbran got the West Brom job, must have a good agent. And then just carried on talking, which is just, it seems... Wow. I know. And Corbran was asked after it, and he was, okay. and he was like, yeah, I just, I just kind of assumed he was joking. It was such a weird thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, good on Carlos Corbran. Good win uh, for him. George, you watched Stoke 3, Blackburn 2 on Friday night, and you're pretty excited about it, sending me a lot of WhatsApps about it. Yeah, I was really excited by Stoke. Um, I actually even messaged a friend of mine who um, is a professional football gambler and said, I think we add Stoke to the shortlist for next season. And he just replied saying, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Perfect. But since, um, yeah, since I had a bit of a rant about them, things have, have improved a hell of a lot. And I said in that rant that I thought, watching Stoke was so confusing because when you're watching an Alex Neal team, normally there is such an obvious aesthetic to an Alex Neal team in the way that they play. And I just couldn't see that at all. This was the most Alex Neely performance from a team that I've seen for such a long time where they pressed so aggressively. They dominated possession in like a very territorial way where it wasn't just um, 
you know, ball retention. It was very much like get the ball forward, win it high, try and be direct with the ball, but at the same time, basically not let the opposition have it. And then having gone one nil up deservedly um, through Keanu Hoover, no change, no let up at all. Keep going, keep pressing, never stop. Don't drop in. But then, you know, the, the, the first 20, 25 minutes of the, of the second half, they were more pragmatic in their approach and they allowed Blackburn to have a bit of the ball without really creating anything at all. Like, I, I cannot stress to you how dominant um, Stoke were up until the first Blackburn goal and how undeserved that Ben Brieton-Diaz goal was. Um, and that's not, you know, no disrespect to Blackburn at all, who've been in magnificent form recently. But I'm sure that, you know, we saw the pictures of Live on Sky of Blackburn fans running back into the away stand all of whom had left at 3-0 down uh, when Sam Gallagher made it made it 3-2. It would have been uh, like an incredibly, I wouldn't say unjustified, because I think if you come back from 3-0 down in the 86th minute onwards, then you probably deserve your point. Um, but on the balance of play for the first 85 minutes, this was a, a total mismatch of quality and the kind of performance that suggests to me that, that Stoke are you know, a 5-1 win at the Stadium of Light, a 3-2 win against Blackburn, where they probably deserve to win the game 3-0. Uh, Pearson and Smallbone just dominating midfield with Laurent as well. Um, Dwight Gale looking pretty lively. Tyrese Campbell is back. Like they suddenly just look like a a very very different Stoke team to anything we've seen in in recent years. And um, will it translate? I mean, it's it's the thirteenth of March today. We haven't even had Cheltenham yet, and I'm talking about next season. But um, <laughs> but you know, it's this time of season where you start to just mentally make a note of teams that look to be trending in the right direction and, and Stoke uh, are very much one of those. Yeah, one thing that could be an issue for them or could provide opportunities for them this summer uh, is the fact that five of their 10 outfield players in this game are loanees. Um, and that's obviously not ideal. Uh, there's a chance that they, they could sign some of those permanently next season. Uh, ben Pearson looks absolutely at home in a Stoke City shirt and I know that they're absolutely loving him so far. Bournemouth situation will uh, have a big say in whether Pearson ends up as a Stoke player next season. Dujon Sterling, we spoke about on last week's Lonely Planet uh, YouTube video talking about Chelsea's loanies in the EFL. He'll be available this summer and I would expect it to be a championship club like Stoke probably who tempts Dujon Sterling to, to join them on a free. So I think there's a good chance that you know a couple of those five might still be there next season, but still there'll be some um, some good recruitment to be done in the summer. Uh, George, there were three 2-0 home wins, Preston 2, Cardiff 0, Birmingham 2, Rotherham 0, and Bristol City 2, Blackpool 0. Uh, which of those would you like to talk about? I think we've got to talk about Bristol City 2, Blackpool 0, um, where <sighs> Bristol City were, were, you know, were totally dominant. There was one big moment in the game where Jerry Yates was through and rolled the ball wide of the post at 0-0, which would have changed things. But um, yeah, I mean, Bristol City... It, it, this is one of those real games where Bristol City fans would have left thinking, wow, this is one of our best performances in a long time. And neutrals probably watched it and thought, wow, Blackpool are incredibly poor um, because they offered next to nothing. Um, I can't really work out what they're trying to do in terms of, um, you know, Gary Medine went off injured within the first five minutes. And it felt like that was the start, you know, that was the, the beginning and the end of their game plan, basically. And without that big man up front, there was no real clear identity in, in how they wanted to play. But also just defensively, like Bristol City were able to carve them open so easily. I mean, credit to Andy Vyman, who scored a, a really good goal. There's a brilliant reverse, you know, camera angle from behind him showing that the left foot to strike into the top left-hand corner uh, to break the deadlock. But it had been coming 
And then Alex Scott finally getting his first um, championship goal this season. Um, but it was, you know, it was 2-0. It would have been one of those games where if, if Bristol City hadn't found a way through, it would have been a, a travesty because they were the better side by miles. And it's, you know, for the championship now, it does, it pretty quickly feels like the winner of the league is sewn up and the three relegated teams is ba- are basically done because right now with Huddersfield, with Blackpool and with Wigan, like the, the performances for them to, to bridge the gap have to improve tenfold because right now they are not only cut adrift at the bottom of the championship, but they're the worst three teams in the championship by a distance. Birmingham had to wait a month and a day uh, for a win. They got it at home to Rotherham. Uh, their first goal was, was lovely. A big old switch from Chong and Kadra controlling it, cutting inside on the left-hand side and absolutely thumping one into the far corner. Quality, quality goal. Uh, Long scored a second from a set play uh, and Rotherham's away woes uh, kind of continue. Uh, most notable for, for Birmingham for me is probably the fact that when Bielik went off, having been kicked in the face, uh, Jordan James came on and their midfield was Chang, James and Hall, which is a 20-year-old and two 18-year-olds uh, for quite a large part of this game, uh, very much holding their own in, in what was a competitive midfield battle against a competitive Rotherham midfield. So, um, you know, I guess if you're looking for silver linings and positives to end Birmingham season, which has been trending downwards for the last few months, it would be if they could feel some level of comfort with six, eight games to go. You know, could it be that Chang, James and Hall suddenly pick up five or six starts to finish the season and and you get a really good idea of of what they can do and how they're developing. And that could be big for the club um, long-term for sure. Uh, And lastly, Preston 2, Cardiff 0. I like what I've seen from Tom Cannon on loan from Everton since he's been at Preston. He's thinking this was his second goal, but he's just looked quite lively Mm. even in the games where he hasn't scored. It was really good running behind. It was a brilliant first touch. He stayed up when a lot of strikers might have tried to dive and win a pen um, and got the reward by finishing past uh, the goalkeeper, Jack Anik. Um, I'm laughing as I say that because Cardiff, George, have experienced back-to-back goalkeeper red cards, which is a lovely quirk, (laughs) really lovely quirk. Yeah, they have. And it kind of came flying out for the for this one. Was it a red card? I, I guess it probably was. Yes. Yeah, I think so. But to get to get sent off basically in, in injury time when you're one 0 down uh, and you're you know you're playing ahead of a um, a sent off um, goalkeeper, uh, Rohan Luthra came on uh, late on, and I'm sure he'll probably be in between the sticks for, for the for the West Brom game. Uh, but just to echo what you said about Tom Cannon and this. It's the kind of analysis I'd expect from um, a footballer who played 47 times for, I don't know, Wolves in the 90s. Um, but he, I love how much he loves scoring goals. I love how both times he scored, he's just absolutely lost it. And I think in a striker, that is in his first loan. He just looks to me like he is reacts the way that I would react when I, if I scored a goal for Preston in the championship. And I like that. <laughs> Good, good. I like that. Um, lastly, in the championship, just the one draw. It was Coventry one, Hull City one, uh, an Estupinian goal out of nowhere, really, and, and posted into the top corner. It was cancelled out by Matt Godden. Godden had a couple of extra opportunities to win the game for Coventry, not taken. Um, so, George, 10 games to go for the majority of the EFL. Let's just see how excited we are about various bits and bobs. You've kind of alluded to a few of these uh, in the last half hour anyway, but uh, the championship title. I'm giving it a one out of five because nothing has ever seemed more done than Burnley being the championship title winners. I, I feel like 
it sounds negative. I will massively appreciate and applaud Burnley when they are crown champions and I look forward to them extending their current 16 game unbeaten run, scoring three goals a game as they seem to. I guess my main interest is whether they can do it over Easter because they've got Middlesbrough on the Friday and Sheffield United on the Monday. So playing second and third. Um, and of course, you know, it's the gap to third that matters most to them, um, but it'll be pretty academic really given that we expect Borough and Sheffield United to be pretty close together anyway so they could do this over Easter weekend which would be pretty amazing I think it's fair to say but I'm, I'm giving that a one out of five for sort of excitement and interest and uh, potential for drama levels uh, what would you give the automatic promotion race yeah it's it's kind of lacking volume but then I don't feel like the autos in the championship ever has more than sort of two or three vying for it around this stage it's it's hard to say now because you could easily give it like a, a three or a or a four at this stage, but then it's basically one week's of fi- one week of fixtures away from being a two because that gap is still there. It, it feels right now like it's it's pretty close. Um, it's one where perception from fans is probably quite different to reality. Where I reckon some of Sheffield United fans, given their re- recent form in Boroughs, probably think. It's a it's a toss of a coin, whereas in, in reality, Blades are obviously still the most likely to get second. Um, but I think the I think because Borough are such an exciting team to watch, and because Luton are again just this incredible underdog story, um, we've got a, we've definitely got a race here, and um, so I'll, I'll give it a I'll give it a three right now, but but it could develop into a five. Nice. And it could also be, could be a done one with week. a few weeks left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. excellent. Okay, um, playoffs, I'm giving a five out of five for. Yeah. Partly because I'm just clutching for something in the championship, to be honest. But it's good, it's good. If we, if we assume that one of Sheffield United and Middlesbrough will be in the playoffs, which I think we can do, then, as you said earlier, there's a lot of teams essentially gunning for three places to extend their season uh, into May. I, I I think I decided it was eight places. I think I decided that Preston just can't can't be the team to put the run together to get them in. So I think I chopped it off at, at surely, Watford. Surely, I mean, Preston fans. I, I know we do this a lot, but surely if Watford are in it and there's a point between them, you just have to. You can't. I went down to Bristol City. So you've got 10 teams for three spots. That's a five out of five, isn't it? Yeah. Lots still to happen here. Yes. Great. Huge uncertainty. Uh, and also it feels like, you know, Luton are obviously looking exceptional at the moment. Um, but Blackburn and Millwall are in fifth and sixth spots. I wouldn't say that either of those feel completely bulletproof. That's not to say that they're, you know, that they're not good teams. I think you can pick holes in all the teams beneath them as well. So it's probably easier to find reasons why these teams won't make it than reasons why they will. And that creates jeopardy, uncertainty and drama. I love it. Um, And relegation, I'm giving one out of five because uh, three particularly bad teams, all miles from safety or quite far from safety, none with a flicker of optimism or form. Um, And as always, a group of teams above them who are are also fairly grim, just a bit less grim. And that should be enough to keep them up. So I'd be surprised if that one goes to final day. And a relegation battle not making it to final day can't be anything more than a one out of five, I'm afraid. So I think my total... My total for the championship, which you broadly agreed with, is 10 out of 20, which doesn't seem like a great score. Uh, Let's talk about League One and see what we think. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday went to Portsmouth and won 1-0. And it was route one perfection for League One's number one team. Um, 
a, a brilliant kick from Dawson straight to big Michael Smith, who held off Riley Towler, gobbled him up, flicked it on Windass with a really good run from deep. No one tracking him, no one able to um, uh, in, in behind. And the flick on was perfect from Smith straight into his stride, uh, a sweet, powerful finish. And, from then on, Sheffield Wednesday didn't do a huge amount with the ball. They didn't really need to. Felt like they did a very good job of keeping Portsmouth at arm's length, particularly from open play where Portsmouth didn't seem to have um, you know, much to say for themselves. They were a handful of, of set-piece chances in the second half. Uh, and I think a, a pretty good dose of housery, uh, as has been reported since. Uh, John Messina, not very happy about. But uh, Sheffield Wednesday winning football matches as they do better than anyone. And nine wins... And one draw in their last 10, 22 unbeaten and extending their lead at the top, which before this one was only a goal difference lead over Plymouth Argyle. They've got two games in hand and now they're three points clear, George, because Argyle went to Barnsley. Oh boy, 3-0 to Michael Duff's team. Oh, Barnsley uh, just showing themselves to be quality, uh, especially at home. Um, previewed this game in the betting show, put up a, a Barnsley win. And even though it took them a while to get going, um, this was what Mike Duff's teams do best, basically, where they dominate every aspect of a game, don't really let the opposition have, have too much in terms of, of opportunities themselves. And uh, a ruthlessly efficient in front of goal. Uh, Adam Phillips getting the first goal. He's hit a really good bit of form. Um, and then Nicky Cadden with a with a late free kick to make it to make it 3-0. Um, their form at home has been has been so good. They've lost three games at home this season and they've only drawn one of the other ones. So they've won every single other game at Oakwell. Um, and this is a result that puts them in the, in the automatic promotion picture because as, every time our guard drop points, it brings the others closer in. They've got games in hand and the way that they're playing at the moment, their games in hand are worth points. Um, so a crucial win for them. And Mike Duff, I still, every week that goes by, I'm, I'm more and more impressed with him as a manager because I think often you can see managers who take jobs at different profile clubs so you know from Cheltenham to Barnsley is a big switch in basically every aspect not only in terms of expectations but club size culture around the club geography pretty much in every single part um, the way the club is run as well and often that transition can be quite clunky um, you know look at Nathan Jones but Duff you know wasn't immediate but he's proven himself over the course of the season just to be somebody who's very, very good at getting a group of players and making them into a into an efficient and effective football team. And that's what he's doing here. It wouldn't surprise me at all if, if, if Barnsley were were properly in the running for, for top two when it comes to the, you know, it's only six weeks in the season, but, but when it comes to that. There was a big moment at the start of second half when it was still nil-nil where Hardy mm. raced clear 10 seconds into the second half. It was not clear enough. I think he thought he was clear. He just ran into the keeper. It was good decision-making from Eisted, who sort of tempted Hardy into trying to go around him, guessed which way he was going to go and then um, got across and, and stopped it. And Eisted's been, you know, a really good performer for them. He was He's not a particularly big name in, in League One goalkeeping terms and he spent so much time uh, of his career at, at Luton just being second or even third choice for the main for the main part of it. But having joined Barnsley on loan in, in January, he's well. He's he's basically started more games for for Barnsley than he ever has before in in the EFL, age twenty six, uh, and is doing very very well. And Phillips, you're right. He just does what he does, right? He gets the ball, quick touch, and then he gets shots off. Um, he seems to be able to get shots off really really quickly with minimal backlift from range, 
and with power and with accuracy as well. Um, and, and that was, you know, the biggest moment from there. They just kind of coasted with a set-piece goal and a lovely little clipped free kick from Cadden to finish it. Unbeaten in 10, 26 points in their last 10, Barnsley. They are very much part of the conversation. Ipswich, uh, they're in good nick as well, George. They went to Bolton and won 2-0. Now, they had Christian Walton to thank here for a penalty save, uh, a Dion Charles penalty, strong arm uh, of Walton pushing it away. That was at 1-0. Ipswich going on to score a set-piece goal from Burgess to win 2-0. It was George Hurst that put them ahead. You know, he hasn't shown a huge amount uh, in, in an Ipswich shirt so far, but if he was to, uh, you know, grow into himself in that front on that front, then he's, you'd think, going to have quite a big say over the next few weeks. As you say, it was a great bit of movement, a good cross from Burns and a brilliant first-time finish from Hurst to put them in front. Uh, and by all accounts, they were better than Bolton in pretty much every aspect, which is pretty impressive, uh, pretty difficult. Bolton normally a pretty good home side. Uh, and for Ipswich, all of a sudden, George, six clean sheets on the bounce, five wins to nil in a row. All of a sudden, they're looming pretty large again and looking pretty ominous. You know, any... Any reports of their demise or downfall were, were pretty premature, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, when you look at how dominant they'd been, you know, when you look at the XG ratio table and then Miles Kerr at the top, it felt like this kind of run was probably going to come. You know, if you look at the, again, the XG numbers for this game, it's kind of level 1.2, 1.2, but you take out the penalty for Bolton and suddenly it, it looks much more dominant. And, that, and that's what it was, really. Ipswich just, just don't concede many chances from set play from open play or set plays really they don't concede any chances really at all <laughs> yeah. so and the addition of you know I, I said in January that I wasn't sure that new strikers were what were, what were needed uh, and this is Hurst's first goal Broadhead's obviously been a success already but just having options to rotate between seems to have done the trick and maybe kept certain players up to task you know I thought that Connor Chaplin for example would struggle for game time once those two came in but he's been their, their best player since the turn of the year um yeah, it, it's hard from this position now. A team who maybe had something of kind of a mental block around finishing games off and being, you know, turning their really good performances into into wins. Six clean sheets and six clean six wins is, is pretty. Um, you know, you couldn't really argue that was the case anymore. And uh, with with Argyle struggling on the road like they are, um, yeah, I would maintain that right now at this stage, the, the likely top two have to be. Wednesday and Ipswich Town. Sheffield Wednesday atop on 77. They've played 34 games. Argyle three back on 74. They've played 36 games, as have Ipswich, who are two back from Argyle on 72. Six points behind Ipswich are Barnsley. Uh, they've only played 34, so they've got those two games in hand that Sheffield Wednesday also have. Uh, and then two back from Barnsley, having played 36, is Derby County who added three more over the weekend, George, at the Kassam, uh, the victor, Sibley. <laughs> he scored two. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, I, mean, I was a bit, I couldn't quite get a great grasp of what this game was like just from watching the, the quick highlights. So um, I'd love you to tell me a little bit about the game and then I'd love you to tell me your thoughts on Oxford United hiring Liam Manning, formerly of Milton Keynes Dons, as their new manager. And then I'll let you rest your voice a bit because I'm, I'm feeling bad <laughs> at how much I'm making you talk. It looks quite painful. The game itself was one of Oxford's best performances in the last few months. And I think for the second week in a row, can feel quite aggrieved at coming away with nothing. Uh, it was a game where set pieces were played the, played the major part. Uh, Sam Long putting Oxford ahead from a set piece. Um, and then 
two goals from Louis Sibley where Oxford failed to clear their lines effectively uh, and he won the third or fourth ball. Two great finishes, to be fair. You know, like uh, both the first one at the near post, the second one a long range, well, a strike from the edge of the area into the top right-hand corner. You know, he did very well with both. And, and I do really hope that we're going to see Sibley start to to produce on the pitch because we know how, how talented he is. Um, it was I couldn't believe it on the highlights when they said it was three years since that since that hat trick against um, Millwall. Um, yeah, that scared me quite a lot. Um, and um, and Oxford were unable to to take their chances. They created an open play, which has been a uh, you know a, a pretty consistent theme over the last few months. Gatlin, Gatlin Odonka and Ashin Smith, the two who missed the, the better chances, um, with Carl Joseph scoring Oxford's first goal in open play since the one or draw with MK Dons a few weeks ago. Uh, later on in the game, I think only their third goal in open play from about 15 games. So again, that's a positive with, um, I'm not sure who it was. With a, It was bizarre watching the Oxford, uh, the fifth goal in the game, Oxford second. Watching an Oxford player put in a little chip ball over the top for, for Carl Joseph. I was like, wow, we've actually created a chance from open play from deep centrally. That is not something that happens very often. Uh, it was um, Marcus McGuane. Um, Liam Manning, yeah, is the new manager of Oxford United. And um, once I had stopped crying into my Cheerios that it wasn't Michael Appleton um, who was, you know, who, who was interviewed for the job and I think wanted the job. Um, and it's a brave decision, I think, from a board. You know, the board are making their first managerial appointment. Um, they'd certainly lost some positivity from the fan base in how long it took to remove Kyle Robinson from his post. I think had the fans had their way, it probably would have been October. Um, so to then be offered up a fan favourite on a plate and to say no is brave. And I'm not saying it's the, the wrong thing to do at all. Um, it just means that that is a decision that the fans know has been made and then probably will be in the pot when judging the decision that was made. And I really hope for Liam Manning's sake that if things don't go off to a great start, that isn't unfairly held against him. In terms of the appointment itself, I, I always said that Oxford needed two managers for this role. Um, a manager to, to keep them safe this season and then a manager to take them forward in League One next season. I think in terms of the second one, Liam Manning is, in my mind, a really exciting appointment long term where if you look at the best recruitment when you look at players... The best recruitment is, is being innovative and not just signing players off the back of good form for top money, but looking at nuance, understand, understanding why players haven't necessarily done particularly well in certain places, getting that right and then investing. So Luton are by far, in my mind, the best at this, where they will t they'll take a player, say Cameron Jerome, Henry Lansbury, these players who other championship clubs probably wouldn't have touched, but actually done their due diligence, un understood where that player is physically, why things may not have worked out in the past, whether that player is being utilised correctly, and then getting value for that because you're investing in, a, a, you're investing in talent at a time where stock is low. I think that's what's, what Oxford might have done here with, with Liam Manning, where this is a guy who 15 games ago in his management career, I think you and I probably both would have said was destined for the very least a decent championship job quite soon in terms of what he did with MK Dons last season with a decent budget and a decent squad. Um, he was probably alongside Kieran McKenna, in my mind, the bright young thing of of English coaching within the EFL. And 
you know, a lot of Ipswich fans, given his his affinity to the club uh, before McKenna was appointed, wanted them to to hire him, and I can understand why. He would have been totally unattainable for a club sitting in nineteenth place in League One uh, before the season started. He was head coach at MK Dons. Twine was sold. Darling was sold. A few loanees left. A couple of other key players moved on. And MK Dons fans will tell you that the players who were brought in to replace them were not good enough. And I remember when Liam Sweeting gave an interview after Liam Manning was sacked, it was very, very obvious how reluctant Sweeting was to sack Manning. I think he knew that he still had a very good head coach, but he also knew that they were destined for relegation and he had to do something. You cannot just sit around and watch your team lose consistently. And they went and got Mark Jackson. I don't think things have really improved MK Dons. The playing style has changed they are still in basically the position, the position they were in previously. Um, managers can only do so much with certain squads. And it is yeah, a bugbear of mine in the way that people talk about managers. X had this team in 23rd. It's his fault. That isn't always the case. In the, in the same way that having a very, very good squad and taking them to a top six finish doesn't necessarily have to be to do with the manager either. And managers are one part of the machine. But Manning's coaching ability, I think, was very clear to anyone who saw MK Dons play last season. Um, I One game that sticks out to me was when I went to go and see Oxford play them. And Oxford beat them 1-0 in the third, three more games after the season. And had MK Dons won that game, they'd have gone into the automatic promotion places. They won the next two games. Had they won the game, they'd have gone up into the championship, which would have been an unbelievable achievement for a, a manager in his first season in, in the EFL. Um, coming in late on in, in a window. Uh, they dominated the game and they lost it 1-0. I've never left a home game feeling like a win has been less deserved than I did that evening. I absolutely loved it. Um, but the short term is that he has to get Oxford out of a pretty big hole where it's one point taken from the last 30 available. A lot of Oxford fans have seemingly gone onto Liam Manning's Wikipedia page and just decided that he isn't the man for that job. I think we do managers a big disservice when pigeonholing them as if they can only see they can only play one way as if they can't come into a club have a look around make a judgment for themselves the best way to get a tune out of these players especially with MK Dons who had quite clearly recruited to play a certain way under Russell Martin and therefore I'm pretty sure when Liam Manning came into the club there would have been a remit of this is how you're going to play because this is what we've recruited for um, he played he continued Russell Martin's three at the back at MK Dons at Lummel, he always played a four-at-the-back system. So you're seeing immediately there that there isn't necessarily a Manning way of playing. But having said that, there's no evidence, there's no nothing in his career that necessarily shows that he is the person to, to, to get us clear. And he managed a club who are right now embroiled in the same relegation battle as us. So, yeah, I'm really excited. I think the, the key thing is the infrastructure around him. Oxford don't have a head of recruitment. He's just left to go and do that job at Derby. Um, and I think Manning, I'm sure, has had assurances that he will be supporting the transfer market next season, no matter what league Oxford are in. And if Oxford have, you know, if Oxford are in League Two, League Two next season, I mean, depending who comes up from the National League, but I'm pretty sure Oxford will have either the first, second, or third top budget in League Two next season. If Oxford stay in League One, I'm pretty confident that Oxford will have a top six budget in League One next season. So, if the players are brought in to support him, then I think Oxford will, will will flourish in either division, but it's getting the the, man, the right man in for a club who've lost their way with recruitment recently to ensure that that happens. 
there should be some easy bouncing, right? Like five defeats in a row. And from what I gather, like the performance is somewhat better than, than maybe a month or two ago yeah. and maybe a bit of misfortune. So uh, I'm predicting a, a, an immediate result or two in the next couple of games in Oxford. Well, they're only three points above the relegation zone at the moment. So you must be feeling a little bit nervy. Yeah. And uh, go to just... Morecambe next, which is a huge game. Morecambe only lost one of the last 12 home games in the league, which <laughs> blew my mind. Uh, Burton beat Wickham 2-1. Huge win for Burkham. Uh, for Burkham. <laughs> I'd like to merge Burton and Wickham and create one super team. Um, a huge win for Burton, who uh, are just easing themselves away from the bottom four. You know, they gave everyone else in the division about an eight-game head start, didn't they, at the start of the season. But Mamria keeps getting these performances out of them when necessary. Joe Powell with a screamer. He was the player in League One who had taken the most shots this season without scoring uh, before then. He gets his goal and it was worth the wait. Uh, from Wickham's point of view, well, when Joe Jacobson is missing penalties, I think you just know it's not your day. Uh, and it's fairly damaging for them just because with Derby winning, Wickham now six points uh, b- uh, beneath sixth place Bolton, seven points behind Derby. There, There is a game in hand over Derby and two over Bolton, but they have to improve their own performance levels if they're going to close the gap. Um, and, you know, with games and performances like this, it looks less and less likely. Uh, and Shrews, George, they beat Morecambe 3-1. They, they keep on rolling. They're the eighth-placed team at Shrewsbury, which I dare say, compared to pre-season expectations, this might be on the podium for biggest overperformance um, in the EFL this season. They beat Morecambe 3-1. Tim Peake was in attendance. Um, he was... As you know, um, famous astronaut, he's got a real interest in the, the trajectory of flying objects. So he wanted to watch Luke Leahy take set pieces. Uh, and he was treated because Leahy scored a pen and also put in a cross um, for flying object Shea Dunkley to head home for their third goal. Uh, a 3-1 win. Morecambe just cannot muster anything away from home, can they? They're, they are two different teams, uh, which does happen occasionally. And, and as you mentioned on the betting show, you find quite peculiar. How can you be very good at home and quite so horrendous away Has from home? Has anyone got in touch to let us know? At Reading FC, at Plymouth Argyle, at Morecambe, uh, let us know. Five wins in a row at home for Shrews, though. They are excellent uh, at home. And George, the thing I've been waiting to talk about for over an hour, Peter Brunil, Cheltenham 3, Alfie! <laughs> Alfie May, the man of the weekend. Those goals... Both of them, by the way, oh. not just the one viral one, are a joke. They're, they're both viral, I think, because they've been clipped together by the clever people at uh, at, at EFL. Um, it is, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we'll take the second one first because it's like, it's a lovely strike. It's so good. One of the goals of the weekend, purely hit into the top right-hand corner. Well done, Alfie, mate. Incredible. The first goal... When you've got a goal where the ball doesn't touch the floor between a throw-in well inside your own half and the six-yard box, that is pretty cool. When you consider the touch and the hit, like it is, if you, I, I assume everyone um, listening to this has seen it, but it's a, you know, it's a throw that's flicked onto May and May kind of picks it out with his right boot high in the air and kind of, even though it's on his left side, flicks it over the top onto his right foot, has a look up inside his own half, wide on the right-hand channel, and absolutely leathers it first time or second time after the after the touch. Now, I've seen some people try and take away from the goal things like, ah, oh, but it bounces. 
oh, like, how slow is the keeper? And I, I will admit that in my head, Norris, it, you know, if I'm a betting man and I'm pricing up when the ball has bounced, the winner of that race, Norris is definitely favourite. And so I don't know if he's got a, you know, stone in his shoe or something, but he's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he, you know, it looks like he should really get there. But you're missing the point. If you cannot see the joy of that, of the audacity to go for it, the touch before, the lack of the ball hitting the hitting the hitting the ground, then this game isn't for you. It is an unbelievable strike, a brilliant goal, and then as a, you know, imagine scoring that goal. Then not long after, in the next half, scoring a goal that normally would be your best goal you'd scored in your in your career, but it's not <laughs> even the best goal you scored that day. Well, he scored a very similar one to his second last weekend or the one before to win the game against Fleetwood it's three ridiculous goals in a row I already saw him as somewhat streaky I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way do you mean somewhat may yes <laughs> this is a guy with an incredible story as well if, if you don't know the story of Alfie May then uh, I suggest that you read up on it he very unusually for an EFL player only turned pro at 23 he played a lot of non-league football in like the Isthmian League Division South 1, mainly bouncing around teams in in Kent. Uh, He'd been released from Millwall when he was a teenager because he was too small. Uh, Doncaster gave him a chance after he'd scored a a million goals for Hythe. And, you know, for for three years at Donny, I think he was a popular player, but he was never someone that gave, you know, that that was given a huge amount of starts. 60% of his appearances for Donny were off the bench. He pitched up at Cheltenham uh, in January of Mike Duff's first full season, the one where they made the playoffs and lost to um, Northampton Town, the COVID season. And they signed him for £5,000, Alfie May. And it's hard to imagine more of a sort of cult hero thing than being signed for £5,000 and doing what he has done since. The, the, one of the interesting parts of May's story is he he wasn't a prolific goal scorer for Cheltenham in their promotion from League Two. In that promotion season, he only scored eight league goals in 3,000 minutes, which is not exactly iconic stuff. Um, But he was a part of it, for sure. And it was only last season, their first in League One, uh, under Mike Duff, when he scored 23 goals, the third top scorer in the division. Only Will Keane and Ross Stewart scored more. He only had seven by the end of January and then finished the season with 16 in 18. He scored 41% of their goals last season, which is about as high a proportion as you're likely to get. Um, He has scored 35% of their goals this season as well, so pretty similar. And it's just an amazing story. He turns 30 in the summer, uh, so he's only, what, five or six years into being a pro player. He's getting better and better every single season. And I just find the next few years for him really interesting. Um, His contract's up at the end of next season. And I think we know from what happened with Cole Stockton, who was in a very similar scenario last season, scored the same amount of goals that May did last season. And he got himself in a bit of a tangle, George, trying to get what is an understandable desire to get a move, to get a, a... a much larger salary when you've been grinding for years and years and years and and you might not have that many more long-term contracts left. I wonder what situation May is in because are there League One clubs with significantly deeper pockets than Cheltenham? Yes, there are. There are probably 10 or 11 League One teams, I reckon, who double the average attendance of Cheltenham and more. And I could probably say, at a guess, would maybe be able to double his wage. He will finish this season likely having scored 40 goals in two League One seasons. And you just think there'll be there'll be people in for him. 
George, I was interested to know from from your perspective as uh, an Oxford fan, if, if Oxford stay up and have a competitive budget as we expect them to, would you look at Alfie May and, and want Oxford to be in for him um, because of the goals that he has scored? Or would you look at, would you be more like, oh, you know, 30-year-old striker, can't, you know, how, how regularly does someone replicate the goals from a bottom half League One team to one who wants to be towards the top? It's an interesting one. As the founding member of the Matty Taylor fan club, I, I definitely wouldn't put my nose up, turn my nose up to a 30-year-old striker joining the club. Um, but, you know, I was someone who, when Oxford were being linked to Cole Stockton last summer, um, I had the devil on one shoulder saying, do it, do it. And then the angel on the other shoulder saying, it's a trap, it's a trap. And I ended up siding with the devil. And I'm so happy that um, <laughs> those of the club didn't because, you know, it is, you have to be very careful when you are signing strikers um, off the back, you know, who have a, a long record of not being prolific and then suddenly having a glut of goals. Not necessarily because um, they can't continue it, um, but more because you are going to have to spend a lot of money on not much evidence um, that it will continue. With May, though, on, well, actually in Stockton to an extent too, but with May, what I love about him is I feel like he offers a lot more than just goals. You know, as you already mentioned, he was a, a key part of that Chantland side that got promoted out of League Two and wasn't necessarily a, a key goal scorer for them. He's a very intelligent player. He's a really energetic player too, who's fairly versatile in where he can play as a, as a striker in a two, um, as a 10. So I wouldn't be averse to it. Um, and I guess with the contract situation as it is, um, you know, the fact that no one ended up getting Stockton would suggest that clubs in League One are pretty reticent to 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 move for these kind of players for that reason. The fact that Paul Marlin ended up at Wrexham probably does as well, despite talk of championship offers. You have to think that maybe there wasn't as much interest as one would have thought after that season with Cambridge. Um, but I like May as a player. I think he's someone who, um, as I say, offers a lot more than that. And the goals that he scores, they're not really... Um, there are two ways of looking at it. Again, like Stockton, he scores incredible goals regularly, which again isn't particularly sustainable. Um, and those will dry up. But then he's also someone who, in my mind, is a very big presence in the box too. Not a big presence, but a good presence and a ruthless presence in the box too. So yeah, I would I would take him. Huge win for MK Dons, the only team in the bottom five in League One to pick up three points on Saturday. They did so thanks to a Mo Issa free kick. And I have to adapt something that I said about MK Dons the other week, which was nothing seems to be going their way all season because I think that applied here for their opposition Cambridge United who started very positively looked quite dangerous who had a goal disallowed Jack Lancaster firing in Sam Smith standing too close to the goalkeeper in an offside position judged to have been interfering with play the sort of goal that doesn't always get flagged and you know could easily have been allowed and it would have been probably a deserved lead for Cambridge as it was that's when they kind of flatlined MK um, getting a bit more comfortable in the game having said that it still took a sensational Mo Issa free kick to win the game for them um, and they have Issa to, to thank for providing a decent goal threat particularly in the last couple of months they'll need him to keep doing that Forest Green lost 3-1 to Bristol Rovers George they look pretty done um, Forest Green I think they'll be I, I wonder if they'll be the first team to have relegation confirmed this season. Most likely, yes. They lost 3-1 to Bristol Rovers, uh, Marquis at the double, Scott Sinclair scoring again. Uh, the, probably the, the most interesting aspect of Forest Green's last week is that their former manager, Ian Birchnell, has been appointed as manager of Anderlecht. 
which is pretty fun. Sacked by Forest Green, appointed by Anderlecht. That's a good agent. Next time anyone here is speaking to a friend or to their other half, and they're talking about a job interview, and they're like, "Yeah, I just don't think I'm, I just don't think I've got the um, you know the relevant experience." Just be like Ian Birchall got the Anderlecht job, so it's always worth applying because you never know. I love that they've appointed him because I think that and I'm pretty sure we said it pretty consistently from the very start of the season I think that he walked into about as difficult a job as you can have among the 72 this season um, given the, the scenario that he walked into uh, and, and a team playing well above their level um, budget wise and having lost some key players and the manager his predecessor who took them up um, the fact that they didn't really trouble the scorers, if you like, under Birchnell um, isn't that surprising and I don't think it means he's a bad manager. The fact that they took a different approach, brought in Duncan Ferguson, who hasn't won a game yet, is approaching 10 games in charge, I think probably helps Birchnell um, and maybe people realising that it wasn't necessarily just him that was the problem. And I just like the idea that Anderlecht have not just focused on one top line he didn't do a good job at Forest Green Rovers, so we can't appoint him as manager of Anderlecht. But they've looked at his body of work. They've looked at his qualifications, his experience outside of uh, the English game, as almost all of his experience was until a couple of years ago. Um, they've no doubt interviewed him and asked him to to prove his, you know, his worth, and uh, and he's managed to do so. So I love it, and I I abs- I hope he absolutely smashes it, because then he'll be a good case study of when you talk about managers, you can't just look at what happened in their last job and let that make you decide how good or how bad they are or how good or how bad they'll do in the next job because rarely has it got anything to do with that. Uh, Exeter beat Lincoln 2-1. Maybe the comedy goal of the weekend? Non-base first? Oh, my God. Yeah, really poor. Um, a, a terrible backheel. It's frustrating to be an away fan watching Lincoln just look incredibly good at t- taking no risks and giving the opposition not giving the opposition an inch to then see that calamitous mix-up at the back to gift Nombe the goal after they'd gone ahead. Um, really poor from them. Um, Paulie O'Connor getting the first goal to put them ahead, Exeter coming back uh, through Nombe, as you say, and then going on to win the game 2-1. Um, yeah, I mean, not a great deal to add, uh, apart from just a, an aberration at the back costing Lincoln possibly three points. Mm. Fleetwood drew one all with Port Vale. Most notable for me was a, a really nice bit of skill from uh, Robinson. <laughs> wow, that was beautifully high pitched. Really nice bit of skill. Mm. Um, he took a shot which was a ricochet into the path of Taylor to score for Port Vale before Fleetwood equalised. And Charlton drew one all with Accrington. Another poor display from Charlton uh, the day after or the day of Dean Holden's new contract being announced. Uh, they they weren't in great nick and they were saved really. An absolute screamer, a stonking strike from Stephen Sessegnon. Just one of those where he really shouldn't be shooting. He has no real right to shoot. There's no particular reason why he needs to shoot. Uh, And yet, he obviously just had a feeling because the trajectory is, well, Tim Peake would be pretty into it, I think. Um, (laughs) The only thing that ruins it completely is how many pigeons there are in the penalty box when he shoots. Does it ruin it? Why does it ruin it? Because all I can think about is the pigeons. What? Why are there so okay. many? How have they been able to sit there undisturbed for so long? That is a great point. It makes his goal look quite tin pot, bit Sunday league. You have unwittingly there just slammed Charlton, and rightly so. Because why? how come the pigeons are there? 
It's not for you to say when I'm being witting or unwitting. <laughs> I was being entirely witting there. Thank you very much. No, you know, you've, you've segued me beautifully onto my next point. Why were the pigeons there? Because Charlton, yet again, couldn't really get near Accrington's box. And so they were able to, to, to take camp until Stephen Sessegnon walloped it into the top right-hand corner. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to be like a broken record here, but I, I, I'm really, really surprised that Charlton have, give, have given Dean Holden a, a three-year deal. Um, I know how popular he is with the fans. And I know how popular he is in football. And, uh, you know, I I just... A, th- a three-year deal for a manager when you're trying to sell the club and when you've taken... You've won one game in your last eight and performances are as bad as they are at the moment. seems... Uh, uh, I'm amazed about the length of deal. I really hope he gets it right. I really hope he turns it around. Um, but that that is a long contract by any stretch. I would feel, I think Liam Manning's contract is three years or three and a half years. And that makes me nervous because that's a big payoff if things aren't going right. Um, fair play to, to Dean for getting it. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm, 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 this was another game. This was Charlton at home to a team in the relegation battle. And the team in the relegation battle should have won the game if it wasn't for one moment of exceptional quality from a young player. Accrington with the better side. Uh, In the interest of consistency, we are rating League One's major areas of interest. Uh, The title race, George, I'm giving a two out of five, just a bit better than the championship because Sheffield Wednesday are only three points clear compared to Burnley's 400 points clear. They do have two games in hand. The levels that they're setting, I see them as more like seven points clear of Argyle and maybe nine of, of Ipswich in my in my head, in my heart. Um, but there is still a chance that Sheffield Wednesday, who are 22 unbeaten, that might not last forever. And if they have a blip of even two weeks, that could be three matches. Uh, and depending on how Argyle and Ipswich and maybe even Barnsley are getting on, uh, then there could be some interest there. So two out of five title race. Uh, autos, Argyle versus Ipswich versus maybe Barnsley as well. Do you want mm. to give that? A, what do you want to give that? A, th- a four out of five? A three out I of think, five? I think currently a four. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a four horse race. Yeah, I wouldn't put anyone off backing Barnsley to be in the top two at thirteen to two with the Betfair Sportsbook. So I do think they're they're more in it than the odds suggest. Um, but again, because they're just relentlessly good at home, they're going to pick up a lot of points between now and the end of the season with those two games in hand. Um, and Argyle, you know, we cannot write them off. Uh, there's no denying that the fixtures have played a part in their poorer away form. Um, and maybe when they play, you know, have easier games on the road, it might improve. Um, so, and, you know, Sheffield Wednesday, whilst it feels inevitable, they're, they're not there yet. I mean, they're, they're, they're their own poor runaway from coming back to the pack too. So, yeah, definitely a four as it stands. What about the playoff picture? I'm giving that, is it a one? I just, I see Bolton and Derby as much better teams than... Wickham and Shrewsbury so it's just difficult to imagine them being chased down that's why I think it's a one I mean I think Wickham have unsurprisingly tailed off a fair bit uh, in the three games uh, or four games since Gareth Ainsworth left um, unbelievable what Shrewsbury are doing there's no denying that but I still maintain that they won't be good enough to chase down the top six so I'd be I would be flabbergasted <laughs> if um, yeah if it's if it's not those those six I guess the jeopardy comes 
within how good the automatic promotion race is <laughs> as to who's going to end up <laughs> in the playoffs. But I think the yeah the bottom two spots belong to to Derby and to uh, to Bolton. And how do you rate the the musical chairs relegation battle? I think it's a three out of five. I think there's a good chance for some drama. I think there's a good chance we get down to final day. A little burst from Morecambe, a little burst from MK Dons. Maybe Cambridge find their shooting boots. You know, that's there's certainly still plenty to play for, but you know, there's also teams above the relegation zone who are picking up points at a decent rate. Yeah, I um, really hope it's a one come the end of the season and that Oxford aren't one of the four in it. But I think at the moment it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, a lot of teams down there not playing very well, basically. Uh, except Forest Green probably down. Um, some big games in the next couple of weeks. I think the, the two Oxford games, Oxford going to Morecambe and then hosting Cheltenham, they both have big says because um, off the back of that, you'd think, for example, if Cheltenham can go to the Kassam Stadium and win, that's probably Cheltenham pretty much out of it. If Oxford can pick up two wins, that will probably be them pretty much out of it. If they lose both games and they're in the mire, like it's, it kind of feels like it's revolving around games between the two the, the teams in those spots at the moment. Like the MK Dons Cambridge game had a massive bearing. You know that has propelled MK Dons to being a 50-50 chance basically and consigned Cambridge to having to go on a huge run now to to get their way out of it. Okay, in League Two, Friday night, the game of the weekend in the EFL. Crew four, Salford City. Three, this would have been surely Crew's best day, best night of the season so far. And it was genuinely, it was a game to remind you like the best parts of this sport. It was so fun. And God, it's easy to get distracted from the fact that football, George, should be fun. Like we should really enjoy watching it, playing it talking about it it's off, often it's easy to get lost a little bit there but this was just bonkers like a real game of hot potato as I said in the intro um, we had a nice opening goal Luke Bolton caught, catching my eye with some great 1v1 skill down Salford's right to set up Louis Barry then we had <laughs> then we had uh, Ajay scoring a penalty somewhat out of nowhere which which gave crew a little shot of life then Salford masters their own downfall passing the ball from the back straight to Joel Tabner who took a touch and just wedged it over the goalkeeper from 35 40 yards into the goal his first senior goal an academy graduate Tabner uh, excellent stuff Hendry said don't care about that I'm going to score quite a fun acrobatic overhead kick to equal things after someone had hit the bar like five seconds before there was a big game of pinball uh, and then we had to wait until the 85th minute when Stevie Mallon who's been injured for ages just plonked one in the corner um, from 20 yards really nice strike to give Salford the win or not 88th minute Connor O'Riordan, teenage centre-back out the academy with a bizarre back heel goal that somehow <laughs> found the goal but it was bizarre because, well, partly because the camera, you couldn't really see it. You could, like, I think there it's was class. A class back heel from O'Reilly yeah. to score. Uh, and then former Oxford United legend Dan Ajay just squeezing one in to provoke mm. Bedlam in the stands. What fun, Tops George. Off. Yeah, the, I mean, maybe this is the Scrooge in me, but the thing I found the most amusing about this game was was when, was just the celebrations from the Salford players when they went 3-2 up um, were extensive keeper running out to the halfway line celebrating as if they'd won the game and then to concede twice um with the the, the crew fans behind Dan Adji ripping his shirt off um 
from what I know of Dan Adji, that isn't necessarily in his in his character. So it just goes to show how how much it meant to um to them. Uh, and yeah, incredible win for Crew. Amazing scenes behind the goal. The kind of the Friday night game that if you're a Crew fan, um, it's what it's all about, really, isn't it? It's why you do it is to go to games like that and, and experience that. And they'll be talking about it for years. So a hammer blow for Salford and their and their top three credentials, even their top seven credentials. It's so tight up there that. The, you know, conceding twice and going from three points to, to zero points is a huge swing right now in, in League Two. Started every game for them this season, Dan Ajay, which is uh, really pleases me particularly because he, he very rarely got a chance to start for Oxford. He was always brought off the bench. So I quite like mm. the idea of him. He's made a move. He's dropped down a level to get some game time and he's getting all of the game time. Can I just tell you something weird about this game? When I watched this back, even though Salford lost and threw away a lead with five minutes to go I think it bumps them up in my own personal ratings because I'm not sure I'd fully appreciated how good their team is I know it sounds stupid to say because the one thing everyone knows about Salford is they've spent loads of money on players to get loads of players in and they have a good squad but it's definitely the most I've ever felt the Salford squad actually makes sense on the pitch together like Torre the left back provides amazing left-sided um, attacking output and Barry can just play as a pure like inside forward which suits him quite well on the other side they've got the nice sort of opposite of that where Jason Lowe's playing right back he just kind of tucks in inverted um, and and guards you know helps in possession and build up and, and guards against transition and Luke Bolton who's a 1v1 specialist he hugs the touchline keeps the width as the right winger really really powerful runner as we saw in the build up to the first goal they've got Galbraith who's such a tight midfielder Elliot Watt who we adore uh, and then their attacking options of uh, Callum Hendry Callum Morton Big Matt Smith uh, Stevie Mallon came on midfielder who I'd forgot they even had because he's been out injured for ages like they've got some fabulous players and I do think they're certainly in attack they're really really purring in this game the centre-backs and the goalkeepers really let them down you have to say uh, and I guess the extent to which that will continue to happen or, or stop happening will decide whether they make the playoffs um, or not because, you know, they're currently there to be shot at in terms of the playoff places. Uh, George Swindon 1, Carlisle 2 really struck me as one of those away games that's part of a promotion campaign that you look back on and you think, do you remember Swindon away where we travelled down, it was snowy that week, it was like we were worried the game was going to be off, travel was a bit of a nightmare and then our left-back smashes in a right foot half volley from 25 yards into the top <laughs> corner out of nowhere. And then they get back into it and we're probably going to go home with one point. And then we score a 96th minute winner, back post header. Yeah, great drama. A massive three points for them um, when you consider how congested the top of the table is. Uh, another one with unbelievable scenes in the corner in front of their own fans after the final whistle. And four wins on a bounce now for, for Carlisle. Um, so a big result for them with Leighton Orient not playing as well because the game is postponed at Mansfield. Um, it's just given those teams in behind the Stevenage, I'm sure we're about to talk about now. Um, just, it's just kind of let them creep up in behind. I mean, obviously the game in hand is there, but it's, you know, I'm sure Leighton Orient would much rather keep them as far away as possible um, and not have games where they can't play and, and they see the teams around them picking up points because you know, that, that, that gap isn't insurmountable. Tell me about Stevenage. They beat Walsall 3-1. Stevenage is quite fun at the moment. They've gone from being like a, a team that we, you know, you kind of know what you're going to get. It's going to be set pieces. They're not going to give much away to suddenly being, <clears throat> having massive end-to-end games, high scoring at both sides. Um, but they were good value for this one here. I thought anyone who, um, 
has a preconceived idea of, of how Steve Evans' teams play, they're probably right for the most part, to be fair. But the second Stevenage goal was total football. Uh, a brilliant goal from um, Luke Norris after a really nice team move, the ball in from Kane Smith. But um, it was not necessarily what we expect to see, apart from the fact that the goal was scored a high XG chance from about two yards, which is what they are exceptional at. Um, not many teams score three against Walsall. They were good value for it. It feels like their wobble might have come to an end. And as I say, with, with Leighton Orient not playing, Stevenage have uh, another opportunity. Carlisle don't, but Stevenage are at home to crew on Tuesday night. If they can win that, then suddenly they've played the same amount of games as, as Leighton Orient. And they're on 66 points with Leighton Orient on 72. So a six-point gap, which we know is is, is doable. So, um, yeah, I think with Leighton Orient, in a similar way to Sheffield Wednesday, not Burnley, obviously, but I think there's been an, just an assumption that, that those two teams at the top of League One and League Two are, are done. And um, as I say, that, that they're a, a poor runaway from, um, from being sucked back in. Colchester nil, Stockport won. Uh, Stockport didn't score in their three previous games, George. I would say this one had a similar pattern to them, but they did score and therefore they won. I score and therefore I win. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sartre. They are. They're defensively just so solid. that That's kind of the way that their games go. They just they barely give up any chances against anybody. doesn't matter the quality. So coming up against the Colchester side, it was always like to be the case, as I said, as I said on the betting show, if they could get a goal, they were probably going to win the game. And that's ended up being what happened. Carl Witten in the first half, putting the 1-0 up. Um, Colchester had a couple of chances in the second half, uh, but Ben Garner's first game in charge was always going to be a tricky one. Um, they did, I mean, they, they dominated possession, as you maybe expect. He's obviously trying to get his ideas across to them early on I mean I, I did say that I thought they were safe maybe results elsewhere mean that they're not quite as safe as I thought you know, the gap is now just six points um, with Crawley getting that result they got uh, you know the big win there so you know maybe not quite safe yet but you, sh- you should think that they'll be okay Crawley three Harrogate one Crawley just getting the things that they haven't been getting Basically all season, but particularly in the last few weeks where it seems like they've lost every single game. And by that, I mean just players getting the ball, looking up, 25 yards out, thumping it into the net. That's Why what, not? That's what Mide Ote did for the first mm. goal. He then scored a second goal after some nice play. Uh, and Jordan Much curled home the third. A lot of people might have missed Jordan Much signing for Crawley a week or so ago. He was a free agent for 10 months his last club was MacArthur FC in uh, in in Sweden, in Australia. Um, I'm not sure why I said Sweden there. In Australia. Um, but he's straight into the midfield here alongside Jack Powell and uh, contributing to a massive, massive win for Crawley. Um, that coupled with Hartlepool drawing one all with Northampton, George, in a, a frankly, a, a farcical game for officiating. I don't talk a lot about refereeing decisions on this podcast so that when I do, you know it means something. This was remarkable scenes right a goal scored by Josh Umira where he was very clearly many yards offside when the ball was played into him and sometimes I like to to make the point that you know um, that the vision of a referee or of a linesman might be impeded for whatever reason or I try and sympathize with them because you know I could see how their their view might have been blocked but very difficult to see how that one uh, was not seen as offside. And then at least they cancelled it out in some style, George. That equaliser for Northampton is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. 
Pinnock runs over to take the corner. He sort of drops it on the floor and taps it with his foot while it's still moving. And as as Leonard, I think it is, walks over to take the actual corner. And then Leonard either on his own decides to be cheeky or Pinnock gives him a little nod. I'm not really sure how the communication works. Leonard just dribbles it into the box from the corner. Yeah. What? What? I know. It was a bit of a farce and not great news for Hartlepool um, that that Crawley won their game 3-1. Grimsby beat Rochdale 1-0. Dale, again, starting okay here, having one or two openings, but a lovely deft finish from from George Lloyd gave Grimsby uh, the three points. I've always kind of kept an eye on George Lloyd because I remember about five years ago um, reading an article in the local Cheltenham Town Press that he'd scored something like 50 goals in their youth team. And I thought 50 goals probably translates to some goals as a senior professional. And it didn't really happen for him at Cheltenham, probably because of Alfie May, the aforementioned Alfie May. But he's he's found, finding a home at Grimsby and uh, showing his quality with that goal. Uh, Jills, two, Tranmere, nil. George, Gillingham with the first team of the 72 that you mentioned as being on your radar for next season. Can't imagine they're off it. Did I say that? Yeah, they're, they're well on it. I should keep some things to myself. Um yeah, I, I mean, they they hadn't won in three coming into this and they hadn't scored. So in a similar way to Colchester, you did wonder if maybe that, you know, the, the good feeling, the recruitment, the good run, um, if we'd got a little bit overexcited. But they, they were good value for this win against Tranmere. Tranmere having a, a pretty torrid time of it at the moment. Um, I think Mickey Madden's days at Tranmere are surely numbered um, if they've got genuine aspirations to, to get out of this league um, with the, their playoff chances um, dwindling by the second. Um, but yeah, Gillingham... I think they're just they're going to be rock solid and uh, under Neil Harris they are a side who you know he is someone who obviously given the given the players um, their squad for the first half of the season was good enough and now that he's been supported in the transfer market and with changes made off the field they look a completely different team and um, I think regulation wins to nil at home is what Neil Harris has made his bread and butter previously in, in successful periods especially in that promotion season for Millwall and um, I anticipate that with Gillingham that'll probably be the case next season. 24 points in 13 games since the turn of the year is the third best PPG in League 2 in that time. Doncaster beat Wimbledon 2-1 from behind. A howler from Mitchell uh, gave Wimbledon the lead, lead through Davison and then Biggins and Miller turned it around. Some quite nice play, some quite nice football from Doncaster. When they get it right, you can see why they're looking to appoint managers and telling them that their remit is to play technical possession-based football. That was certainly what was talked about under Gary McSheffrey and after the appointment of Danny Schofield. Clearly, results-wise, it hasn't worked uh, hugely, but I can certainly see some some signs of positivity when things go well. I realise that that's been few and far between. Still only six points off the playoffs as well, Donny. It's just such a confusing team. 15 wins, 15 draws. Sorry, 15 wins, 15 defeats, five draws. A lot of those wins early in the season felt like quite jammy wins. Most of the defeats have felt like they were deserved. And yet, six points off the playoffs, and if they went on a little run, who knows? Uh, it's a strange one. Uh, why was the weekend so full of comedy moments, George? Because the goalkeeper gaff in Newport Bradford, that's got to be right up there, doesn't it? Uh, the rugby lines. It's all about the rugby oh. lines. There's actually a very good point made in the voiceover for this, in the highlights, where he's like, it's not a red card because it's not deliberate. And that's fair enough. It's not deliberate. He hasn't deliberately handballed it because he thinks he's in in the box. So, I mean, I I am 
very happy that he wasn't sent off. I think it would have been a total and utter farce if he had been. And if he had been sent off then, and I was in charge of a football club, I'd have been getting people to put lines all over the pitch just to see what happens, just to freak out the opposition. Uh, you can't get an advantage um, by having a rugby team playing there. Um, it was I've never seen that happen before. Um, and it's slightly concerning that he obviously had no idea where he was in relation to his goal. Um, but either way, I'm happy that, that he didn't uh, see red. And Barrow nil, Sutton nil was a match that happened on a presumably oh my God, that poor. chilly, chilly peninsula. I wonder if that might be the lowest combined XG game of the season so far in the three leagues. I wonder how we'd find that out. Has anyone got XG data for every game that's happened this season? Does anyone know how to scrape that quickly and tell me if that was the lowest combined XG of a match this season? Feels quite on brand to finish the pod off. Um, yep. As for League Two, George, what should we be excited about? The title, you're saying not done yet, but with the gap that they have and a lot of ifs and buts and hypotheticals in terms of Stevenage games in hand, I'm calling it a two out of five. Yeah, it's a small two. chance. Two. Uh, autos and playoffs, I might go full five out of five. Yeah, I agree. Double five. It's basically the same thing, isn't it? Because I feel like both automatic promotion spots and four playoff spots very much up for grabs. Stevenage obviously in a yeah. pretty strong position. Uh, and then relegation, two? No, two. Well, it's just Crawley or uh, Hartley, isn't it, basically? No, what are you on about? Look at the league table. You've got, I mean, Harrogate are, Harrogate are desperate as well. I reckon it's at least a three. I'm, I'm saying, what's the gap? A six-point gap in, in a relegation battle is... Loads. <laughs> it's loads, because they don't pick up lots of points. What, you, what do you mean? It is a smaller gap than it would be at the top end of a table, because there are fewer points per game, so a win is more likely to, to lift you quicker. For example, Gillingham, who went from being detached to the bottom of, of League Two to suddenly 17th, Colchester who did the same. Like, a six-point gap is is effectively two wins can get you there because the teams around you are picking up points at a slower rate. It's a smaller gap. Three out of five for the relegation battle. And what that means is that, objectively, League Two is the most exciting division, which has always been my theory. Um, but I think mm. that's 15 out of 20 we've scored League Two. So there you go. Cool. Um, Thanks for getting through this, guys. Thanks for listening. It's been a real pleasure to talk you through the EFL weekend um, with a sore-throated George Alec, but uh, great fun Mm. as always. Go well.